Welcome to the Rural Sales Show with my dad and host Sinjin Craner. Each week, my dad interviews people who you can learn from like sales and marketing experts, authors and performance coaches to help you and your rural sales team get to the next level. Oh, and make sure you subscribe or rate us on iTunes so you can buy me a motorbike. And now here's my dad. This week, we are very fortunate to get hold of and collar a bloke by the name of Otis McGregor. Otis McGregor served in the US Army for over 25 years. He was a lieutenant colonel, so he's pretty high up, pretty senior, and uh, served as a Green Beret. He's seen active service in Iraq, Afghanistan, the Arctic, Alaska. So he's going to bring all these lessons he's learned from the military and the army, and we're going to ask him a bunch of questions about how that relates to rural, how it relates to sales, psychology. We talk about leadership, adaptability, flexibility, strategy, resilience, all those good things that we need to focus on in our rural lives as we get um, hit around on the front line. And Otis is um, he's quite a special guy, uh, also because he, uh, he actually understands rugby as an American because he actually coaches it as well. So we talk a little bit about rugby and we touch on the All Blacks and some of the leadership and team issues and performance issues they have at time of recording this show. So you're in for a real treat on this one. He shares an absolute ton. There's some really, really brilliant takeaways that you can uh, you can write down. So grab a pen if you're not driving. If you are, just tune in, listen and learn. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed talking to Otis. Okay, this week we are very, very lucky to have a guy by the name of Otis McGregor. Otis McGregor is a friend of mine. We are in similar uh, similar business groups together. And I brought Otis onto the show, guys, because Otis is a wealth of knowledge and he has a very, very strong military background. He uh, retired from the US Army in 2009 as a Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel following 25 years of dedicated service. And while in the Army, he had a broad range of experience uh, starting off from being a private driving tanks, being an engineer in the Arctic, running uh, heavy equipment in the most extreme Arctic conditions. He's led the Green Berets on complex, dangerous missions around the world, from Arctic in Alaska to counterterrorism units in Iraq and Afghanistan to NATO special operations and a whole bunch of stuff he probably doesn't even tell us about. Um, <laughs> Otis lives in Colorado with his lovely wife, Susan, and three grown children. And uh, if you check him out, and we'll talk about where you can find more about this uh, this good man, but he loves his whiskey words, which he posts on Facebook and LinkedIn, which I would very much recommend. It's like sitting down for a fireside chat with someone having a whiskey, and he's toting a really big cigar like a good retired lieutenant colonel should. So, um, Otis, it's great to have you here. Hey, it's great to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Cool. Now, Otis, I'm going to... Um, for our listeners who are mainly sort of Australia or New Zealand, but predominantly New Zealand, you actually know a thing or two about rugby. For a Yank, for an American, that's actually quite a rare, rare thing, right? It, it is. It is. And, uh, you know, uh, I was brought into it by my youngest son who's part of our Tribe and Purpose business, but I was taught by a Kiwi. So when I started coaching, I, I knew nothing about the sport whatsoever, other than there was no pads. That was about it. And, uh, yeah, a good friend of mine, uh, uh, John Patterson, uh, family's from the uh, South Island in uh, New Zealand. And, yeah, it, uh, I fell in love with it. It's one of those, wow, I wish I would have started, uh, got involved with the game much sooner, but better late than never, right? It was yeah, absolutely. a lot of fun. 
absolutely yeah. and um, the, don't, we don't normally wear all those sort of crash pads that your other boys do right no, and and the ironic thing is when when I was recruited to play when I was much younger, I had the same response that I hear from you know I've heard from all the parents now that I've been involved with the game is how dangerous it is and all that. But the, what I always laugh about is the guys that always tried to get me to play. It was Monday morning after they had played on Sunday, and they usually had some mark on their face like like three dots from their from a, an opponent's boots or some big scratch or a black eye. And I'm looking at them going, why? You know, I grew up in Texas. I, I play football. You know, I got a helmet on. <laughs> Protect me. <laughs> yeah, that, so I never played. I never played yeah, until, was... uh, until I coached. I had been coaching for four years, I think. And I played my first match of old, old boys rugby. Yeah, what we call the masters. What position did you play, my friend? Uh, lock or eight. Right. So uh, you're a tall timber. How tall are you? Uh, just six foot, a little over. Yeah, nice, steady six, six foot. Yeah, yeah. Now, just to let's to paint a picture for the listeners is I'm talking to Otis, and he's about an hour and a half from uh, Colorado, and he's about to go and shoot some deer. And we logged on, and I've actually got a recording of this, but we've obviously got the audio for the podcast. And he, and he beams up and he shows me sort of like this wood shack chalet and he's about to go shoot some deer on the 1st of September, which is obviously your tomorrow, which is our today. And I said to him, I said, is that a, is that a backdrop of like, because it's really good. And he said to me, no, I can go and shake some trees for you if you want. So uh, we might provide a, I might take a screenshot here and, and prove to everyone that you're, you're the real live Bushman. Otis, anyway, let's crack into it. Um, yeah. I've been looking forward to talking to you, so I really appreciate you making time for us. And the, actually, the first thing I've got is uh, just a little tangent. Our little All Blacks here in New Zealand are having a bit of a wobble at the moment. You might have been following it. You might have not. Uh, if you have, and it's a very short answer if you haven't, what do you think is going on there in that whole All Blacks environment, that leadership with the coach and the players and the governance and the board? What's your profound wise whiskey words on that one my friend uh my my simple thing because i don't it's it's actually quite hard to get good articles up here but from what i've seen there's they're they're not unified they're no longer unified and what's sad about it is when 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 everybody's when you win everybody wants to be everybody agrees right but the true test of an organization is when things aren't going right and right now things aren't going right. And there's a couple of things. Maybe it's a little bit of the, hey, the, the opposition is caught up. That's part of it. I always believe that, especially when you're on top for so long. What does everybody do? They copy the way you play. And if you don't, whether it's business or on the pitch, if you're not innovating continuously, you fall victim to being in a red ocean. Uh, one of my favorite business books, Blue Ocean, the Blue Ocean Strategy. Yep. Yeah, you got it too. So guess what? There it is. Yeah, guess what? The All Blacks have found themselves in a red ocean. And now now they're starting to come apart, which is frustrating. And until somebody pulls them in, somebody says, all right, stop. Let's all go, you know, go back to the sheds, if we will, and clean this up and figure out what's going on. And the sky is not falling. It's not a, it's not the end of the world. Although it may feel like it's everybody standing outside, right? Yeah. <laughs> but the the players, the coaching staff, the board, 
they all have to get on that same sheet of music and have that true belief that this is how we correct. Those are some batches we've learned. I mean, how many proposals have you sent in and didn't get selected that you thought, man, this is it. This is it. And what do you do? I mean, you can either fall apart or you can say, all right, well, how do I fix that? How do I change that? And I think that's where they've got to be looking at themselves. They've got to, I think they've got to fence themselves off and go, go reflect back as an organization, maybe as three separate organizations, coaches, players, and board reflect back on it, then come together and get reunified. Cause that's, that's so critical, so critical at that, at that high level of performance, those little things. You, I mean, you watch it on the pitch, right? It is nothing more that, you know, the difference in a gap is, is a, you know, an inch or two and the guy is gone and scores a try, right? I mean, that's, that's all it is. And that's all the tweaking that it needs, but you have to be able to see it and recognize it and be willing to make the change and not continue to divide the organization. Yeah, well, well said. It sounds like um, I think they're looking for a leader or two. You might you might be putting your hand up, but it might be heading over here. Hey, um, so tell what I got to do is I'm just picking up that as a parallel. Like with your extensive military background, give us an example if you can, if you can share with the listeners around where you've seen a team fall apart under you know extreme circumstances, risk to life. You've obviously been in lots of those situations. Some you can talk about, some you can. Maybe you could share with the listeners like. Where have you had a situation where you've had to really build that team together after being shook or under attack or under fire? Tell me, tell me about that. Uh, the one, one that's coming to mind. Uh, we weren't under fire. It was, it was when I was in Alaska as a lieutenant, uh, my first assignment, and we were a brand new organization and having to to pull all that together and start from scratch. Uh, literally, start from scratch with. Uh, and in the, in the great wisdom of the U S army, the majority of us, uh, who were assigned to Alaska were from the South. And a lot of those guys, uh, had never even seen snow. So there was, you know, the, the whole thing of how do we pull together? How do we, how do we survive? Uh, quite literally in some cases, uh, because it, it is dangerous. Uh, nobody's shooting at you. But, uh, you know, minus 40 is minus 40, right? Whether we're Celsius or Fahrenheit, quite literally. Mm. Uh, so how do we pull that, that together? And it was, it was a common one, – one of the great things about the military is the common mission. And when the unit buys into the mission, then they, they, cohe- you know, they, they come together. They become a cohesive organization. We talk about flow all the time. And making that organization operate with flow. And the way you do that, uh, just like we were talking about with the All Blacks, is, is each piece and element to include each of the individuals within each of those elements have to ha- have to have belief that what they're doing is important then and that their piece of what they're doing provides an opportunity is value added to the success of the organization. And when these things start to happen, that's that's the basics. That's the very fundamental step one of creating the organization and the and the foundation. So everybody has to believe in it. Uh, and I can go back into a little bit more about values and having the same values, aligned values is really 
how you find the right people, then those people that have the aligned values have to believe in the purpose, the mission of the organization. And then the, the next level, and this is, this is where I think the All Blacks are starting, have, have drifted, is the next level is I have to know everything about you and how you think and react and what you do before you do it. I have to recognize the situation and know that Sinjin is going to do this because we've trained so much together, whether it's on the pitch or in a combat operation or, or just in putting together a proposal in business, right? I know how that's going to affect you and what you're going to do. And you know that about me, our strengths and weaknesses, our reactions, our, our feelings, and we anticipate that. And when we get to that point, that's, that's flow. That's the ideal situation for any organization. Every organization should, should strive to achieve flow in their organization because when you have flow, then you're a cohesive singular unit, a single organization as opposed to separate individuals going through it. Yeah, 100%, Otis. I mean, listening to you there is like having that sense of belief, that sense of belonging you know, without getting all primal biological brain. And also this whole thing, we, we work with clients around a lot of time defining their single organizing idea. It's like their bonding agent because they make it too convoluted, uh, convoluted, too complicated. Like they all are afflicted by complexity bias. We'll boil it down into two or three words and you're, you're 100%. You talk, my friend, about values. Now, I, I'm i uh, often quoted and I think I probably nicked it from somewhere else like I do with most of my things and I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a rogue because I can't remember who said what, but I can't remember to respect them to citate them. By the way, that's why we get along so well because I don't remember who says any of those <laughs> things. <either. laughs> exactly. So with it, I um, I often say to my clients, you know, we, we do this work and we do the positioning work and, and a lot of work that we'll get into in a minute here. And I go, um, oh, you've got these values. And the problem is values are just words in the absence of behavior. So we see the same words, Otis, we rock up to the corporates and the, the, the companies you and I serve, and you see integrity, professionalism, excellence, um, passion. These are some of my favorite kind of uh, yeah. nauseous words that we see, but they mean nothing without behavior. What's your view on values? Because I call them value schmalues. I'm much more interested in the behavior. What's your view? Uh, I believe you have to have them, but there should only be two or three, and I'm right there with you. I don't know how many. Uh, I can I can think of it one no maybe four now now as I'm starting to think organizations that I've either been part of or or came in to help and you walk into the break room and there's this beautiful sign you know that's they they had to spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars on this beautiful sign with calligraphy of their organizational values you can't even read the stupid thing because it's this fancy writing nobody can read it and I guarantee you, nope and there's like ten of them. Yeah. Nobody in the organization has a clue what that thing says in the break room, Yeah, let alone what their values are. And the values, one of the things I, I always teach is as the leader, you have to establish the values of the organization where the organization will create its own. Yeah. And 100%. you have to be mindful of that. And one of the things that, you know, everybody always talks about having values, you know, uh, I, I say it sometimes tongue in cheek because all the military guys that I work with, you know, duty, honor, country, right? Well, that's not really true values, but, but the ones you mentioned, you know, integrity, uh, honest, well, integrity, honesty, service, uh, 
and and helping people you know these are all values that that are so important but if you can't if you can't remember them and and, and here's the other thing I, I I'll, I'll back up a second instead of just remembering them you got to write them down because if they're not written down then they're not real there's a weird thing that goes on in our mind and i think that's what those companies with the with the sign in the break room are trying to do but they're not they're not demonstrating it. They're not doing it. I've I've had some clients where you know they talk about how they they have this value of how important the trust is of the team and the trust of the individuals and development and improvement. In reality, it ain't there. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. I what I love what you said here is is something that I pick up as well is uh, if the leader doesn't establish those values and those behaviors and that sense of belonging that belief or that singleizing idea or how you ever you articulate it you leave what i call a communications vacuum and the law of physics fills that vacuum and people if you don't create your culture people will create that culture for you or bring their culture that they had which might have been right might have been wrong could have been some good could have been some bad and they fill it up so you're 100 on there and the other thing i like is uh I've always liked this phrase. I think it's Benjamin Franklin. You will know as a yank, whether it's not, but he says a principle is only a principle when it costs you money. <laughs> so one of our principles is here at Agreeum, we only work with good human beings. And my client evaluation criteria is very simple. Can I have a beer with you? Are you do I would enjoy your company? There are obviously some other things, but that's the first one and foremost. And we've walked away from clients that are not good human beings and they've been a lot of money for us. But as I say, a principle is only a principle when it costs you money. Now, so I want to move tact if I can. I want to talk about, because we talked about the All Blacks, we talked about leadership, we're going to get more into that, and I think the listeners are going to get a lot out of this, is why is it that we learn so much more if we're willing, you know, the whole, you know, fixed mindset versus growth mindset, Carol Dweck, why is it we learn so much more from our losses? Uh, I think it's because we pause when when it, it hurts. Pain is a powerful teacher. I've always said that, you know, Love that. you put your hand, you put your hand on the hot stove. You're going to learn that lesson, not to put your hand on the hot stove. And when, when pain, pain is one of the things that helps us change how we live, how we do things. You know, the other, the other one is, is happiness. So happiness can pull you, but really the most powerful thing to help you change and look at things differently and do it differently is pain. I mean, mm-hmm. flat out, because you're not putting your hand on that hot stove again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know what? When you you put your your heart and soul, and like we mentioned earlier, into that proposal, and you think this is it, this is the one we're going to, man, we got this, we did such a great job, and then the, you don't win it, you know, that's, that's getting kicked in the jimmy, right? And it hurts, <laughs> and it sucks. And the 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 true leaders, here's, here's a little bit of philosophy I use around uh, energy levels that, that I talk about and positive and negative energy levels. A leader, when, some, when a leader is responsible for something, an organization, which makes them a leader, uh, but when, 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 that lead, when something goes wrong in that organization, a good leader stops and does a, a, a self-check. They reflect on themselves. What did I do? that caused that. And then they take a step up and they say, okay, what did somebody else, what did Joey do, Bob, Fred, what did they do that might've caused that? 
And then they kind of get into the a little bit of a transition mode of, all right, well, I can see how that happened and that happened, and maybe that's why we didn't win this win the contract. And then it's all right, well, how do I fix this? How do I help my team so that they don't feel that problem? So that they don't suffer and struggle to see the outcome, to, to be more positive. And then the next stage, and this is the stage that that really things start to happen, is what's the opportunity in this? How do we make the best out of this? And that's what that's when you start to take that action out of the feeling sorry for yourself. And all those things, those five steps, they can happen like that. I mean, or you can you can sulk about it for a few days, you know, because it really sucks and you want to complain and bitch to everybody about it and all that. Okay, well, yeah, you can do that. Or you can say, all right, do a self-check. All right, I think this is what I might have done differently. I might have said that, might have gotten a little piece of data. Hey, did I? did Joey get the right training? Maybe we need to retrain Joey. Maybe he didn't understand that. And then we start to move that up the scale and we see that opportunity. That's, that's how, that's how you grow. And it all goes back to pain being that powerful teacher. Cause when you get kicked in the gym, it sucks. I mean, it's, and it, it, it pushes you because you don't want to get kicked in the gym again. It's like, you don't want to put your hand on the stove again. Yeah. Right. Yeah. hundred percent. Otis. hundred percent. I love that. And it's a great reminder to all great reminder. Me, actually, pain is a powerful teacher. And we learn more from our losses than we do our gains. Like, you know, for me, you know, sometimes I see clients, uh, I actually had a client this week, that they're just not getting the closing conversion rate on their proposals. And I've taught them how to stop submitting what I call premature proposals. Because what's happening is the more you invest in something, that sunk fallacy bias, that overinvestment, you become needy in the negotiation, desperate for the deal, generally because you haven't got enough prospects in your pipeline, and we can talk about that forever, but we won't. But what I like about it is that mindset that you take is, as a leader, you go, it starts with me. What? How was I responsible? What do I need to do? So you that stop, that check. Because leaders don't make enough time to reflect, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, is when we were in COVID and lockdown here, we had some pretty pretty fierce lockdown rules here. And I was working out of my garage and uh, very uncharacteristically, I had a few uh, pictures I'd put up and words I'd put up. And the the one that worked for me most one was, what can I learn from this? What can I learn from this? So I love, I love that. And I think people really, and we'll make a big fuss of that. Pain is a powerful teacher. Such and such alone, just that is is a great lesson. Now let's move on, Otis. I want to sort of talk about, what about... You know, a lot of our listeners here are either running rural businesses. They might be seed companies, fertilizer companies, genetics, uh, uh, any any across the sector, agritech, uh, farm consultants, and the rest. What do you do in the military? What have you learned the lessons military when there is a leader there that either isn't leading or is maybe sat in that seat for too long and isn't getting the respect of the team? Because I see a bit of that. In fact, I've seen a, I've seen quite a bit of it lately, where that person just waiting for the paycheck, waiting for retirement. They're generally of a certain age, and they don't want to rock the boat. What would your advice be? What do you see? What have been your observations in the military where you've seen that situation? Uh, well, actually, in the military, it's quite easy because you just wait them out <laughs> because the military with all the movements. So in that sense, now, uh, what I, I've, I've had clients that have had this exact issue 
And it, it is difficult because how do you, you know, that's, that's the guy that signs the check, right? And, and if he's just kind of happy with things and, you know, I want the business to sell and I'm ready just to kind of ride off into the sunset. Yeah. Well, everybody else in the organization is not. And the only, the only, the only true, the best course of action, let's put it that way. The best course of action for that is to go to that person and address it and say, Hey, we need to do these things to continue to grow. I understand where you're at in life, but I'm not there. The rest of the team, you know, the, the six 25 year olds that we have working for us aren't there. Yeah. And their, their livelihood depends on the vision that you use to create this business. So how can we do that to help you have a better retirement? Oh, by the way, because if you're selling the business and the business is still growing, guess what? You're going to get more money for your retirement and your vacation and holidays with your with your wife and go and see the grandkids, right? So I, I think the best solution is to a direct conversation with the individual, not in an attacking mode, not not like a mutiny where the whole crew comes into the office and says, all right, we're going to change. No. Not, not Captain a, Bluff. Hey. Yeah, not <laughs> that's right. Yeah. We're not having mutiny yeah. about the, about the, about the bounty here. Carry on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, but that that is that is the secret to it. Is and that now what always comes back is what if they don't? Because that happens, right? Well, you have to make some tough decisions then. Are you okay staying in that state? Accept it. You know, is there can you handle until that handle the that environment, that culture until that uh, person, that individual leaves and then have this hope that the culture will change? I mean, is that is that acceptable to you? Because if it is, then you have to learn to accept it and not uh, not fret about it. Because if we if we get wrapped around the axle in it, then we're right there causing it and making it actually making it worse. Because that frustration, as the you know, let's, let's just say like the middle manager, that middle manager's frustration filters down to his team. I don't care. I don't care how good you think you are. It's still there. They see it. We're all humans and we get pretty darn good at recognizing things going on. And it's, it's in your subconscious. And because it's in your subconscious, that negative thought, that frustration, guess what? That subconscious is preventing you from seeing other opportunities and other ways of doing things. Because when you're frustrated, you're, you've got blinders on and it narrows your vision down to where all right, how do I just get this done? How do I, what do I need to do to get till five o'clock so I can go home? Yeah, hundred, hundred. I mean, that that powerful thing, which is something I've always struggled with life, is acceptance. And I've probably been someone that wraps myself around the axle. I've probably been fairly confrontational in the past, probably haven't approached in the right way. And I'm, I have no problems in calling people out. Um, but I think you're right. You have to do it with the intent, with the sincerity of intent that is in the best interest of the business. And come from that kind of point of view, because I see it a lot, you know, where people have succeeded, but it's like it's like Marshall Goldsmith, you know, what got you here won't get you there, right? And it's like, okay, you've done a really good job and you've been a service to the business. It might be your own business or you might be in higher management, it might be a, a general manager or a CEO, 
But I come to these businesses, Otis, and they haven't been performing for years. They've been in, they've been basically married to mediocrity, and it's frustrating. So you know, naturally, when someone like me comes in, I'm I'm a threat. I'm a threat to the amygdala, to their status, their significance, their standing. So, good advice there: either accept it, or your advice is have a constructive conversation and call it out and meet it head on. And to say in the military, it's a very different process because, of course, those people get moved on pretty damn quick. In Sibby Street, in back in commercial business world, I think we tolerate underperformance far too long, which leads me then to my next question: like, how? Why is it that leaders? And I'm seeing a lot of it, and I don't know, maybe it's just me with post-COVID and everything else, but they're tolerating a lot of underperformance. Why does that happen, and how do you stop that? I think it happens because everybody wants everybody else to like them. And we don't like hurting, as, as humans, as most, most humans, we don't like to hurt other people's feelings. And we feel that if I tell that person they're screwing up, then I'm going to hurt that person's feelings. But if we establish the culture, so I'll take a step back. There's the military adopted a zero tolerance for many things and also an upper out sort of attitude, meaning either you got promoted or you were leaving the military. That's, that's it. Didn't matter. Didn't matter how good you were at doing at driving a truck. You couldn't drive the truck forever. You had to be the guy in charge of people driving the truck. And when that doesn't work and you fail, then the army says, you're gone. And what, what I really believe as far as leaders go is that we suffer. It, it is hard to have a hard conversation. And the reason it's hard to have a hard conversation is because we make the conversation hard as opposed to, all right, this performance is not good enough. We need to make it better. I mean, think about, uh, think about game day, post, post game film day, right? Post game film day. What are we doing? We're watching the film. We're seeing the actions. We're saying, all right, right there, you chose to go right. Why did you choose to go right? Well, I went and I actually used to do this with my boys uh, on our film days is I, I didn't do it right after the game. We didn't talk about the game right after the game. We did it on film day, watching the film. And I would ask them so that they would understand, OK, I've made these choices in this situation. All right. Well, what might have been a better choice? And we work to retrain them. You do the same thing in business. If that person is not performing, why are they not performing? Do they not understand their job? Have you not defined what their job criteria is? What are the things they need to do in order to be successful in this job? Have you given them the tools on top of that? So they got to know what they need to do. You got to give them the tools and the training for what they need to do. And then if they still screw it up, then maybe it's, maybe it's not the right fit for that person. Mm -hmm. And I always believe no matter how poorly that person performs, you got to, it's still a human being and you got to take care of them. You got to say, all right, I'm, this is, this is, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go work for somebody else. And here's how I'm going to help you go to that, that new opportunity. Cause this is not the right position for you. This is not the right organization. It's not the right fit. Yeah. I'm going to help find you another job. I'm not just going to fire you, kick you out on the street because that's a human being. 
Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. anybody, I, I experienced this a uh, couple of years after I gotten out of the army where I was laid off and the, they closed our office down. The corporate corporate office was in another location and they decided they didn't like our where our location was, even though we were bringing in business and they closed us down. And the CEO told me, I hope we can still be friends. This is, this is just a business decision. And if he had done it, like I just described, we would be. Mm-hmm. But what he did was treated me like he, he listened to some HR person rather than being, rather than taking charge of the decisions, treated me like I was going to steal from them, wiped my, remotely wiped my phone, shut off all my access without telling me all these sort of things. Like I was going to steal something from them and then tells me this is just a business decision. Yeah. So it's like, it's not humane. And I think you have to show people dignity. You know, it's a very difficult stage and a lot of vulnerability and a lot of emotion. And and I think the exact steps you just outlined there is the right way to go about it. I've got another question for you, Otis, because you've answered them so well. Do you think you can motivate? (laughs) An unmotivated person. Yes, Tell but me. you have to know. You have to know what motivates them. What is what is that incentive that gets them up? What's their why? Why are they doing this? Who are they doing it for? There's another thing that everybody talks about. What's your why? But who, who? is the who behind your why? And when you start to you, you have somebody is a poor a poor performer. In your organization, you got to ask yourself those questions that I mentioned before. Is is it, you know, is it something that me as a leader, did I not define it for you? You go through this whole process, that same process I just described. And yeah. if they still don't perform, then you have to ask them, well, what is it that you want to do? If you don't understand what that person wants to do, what they want to achieve, then why are they there? Why Why do you have this job? Is your job, did you get this job just so, you know, you didn't have to sit in the house? Did you get this job to save up money for something? Did you get this job because there was nothing else? You know, all these sort of things. Understand what that person, what's what's inside them? What's the fuel that's driving them? Most people are not going to be able to answer that right away. I would say probably 99% of the folks that you talk to, they're not going to really know, but when you start to ask that question, you're doing, as a leader, you're understanding that individual and you're gaining that individual's trust back to you. In other words, they, they, that person that you're saying is not performing well, has no motivation to perform well. When you start to ask them those questions, they realize that you care about them as an individual, not just as an organization. Yeah. And if you give me a, a, just a second to take a little bit of an offshoot, I, I have something I like to I refer to as the trust triad, trust triad of leadership. And the trust triad of leadership starts with you as the leader. As the leader, you have to believe, trust yourself to make the best decision with the information you have in the moment you have to make that decision. That's number one, the trust triad of, of that. That's the foundation of the triangles, the way I like to think of it. Number two is... I have to trust my team, the individuals on my team, to perform the job that I hired them to do. Otherwise, why are they on my team? If that guy is a right-handed 
uh, grade five nut emplacer, and I don't trust him to do that job. Why is he doing that job? I need to get somebody that I can trust to do the right-handed grade five nut emplacer, right? I need to get somebody that can do that. And when number one and number two, when I trust myself and I trust my team are in place, then the third leg of the triad starts to happen. And now my team trusts me as the leader. They believe that every decision that I make has the team's best interest involved. You know, there, there's in, in some organizations, I was going to say a lot, but probably more some, some organizations, the people doing the job, the performers, the guys on the line, if you will, they start to get this attitude that the leadership, the C-suite, the owner, is only, do, only cares about the profit margin and doesn't care about them. And when that happens, that, that, that third leg of the triad I was just explaining, where the team trusts the leader, does not exist. And we have no trust in the organization. Yeah. So if we have those three things in place, the leader trusts himself, he trusts his team to perform, and the team trusts the leader, then you got that nice strong triangle, which is what? The, the structure that we use to build bridges, buildings, you name it. I mean, in the engineering world and physics world, that triangle is really strong. When the, one of those legs is weak or doesn't exist, the whole structure collapses. Nice. I love the metaphor, Otis. Love the metaphor on that. I mean, uh, funny enough, I was training a team this week and we were talking about keeping the lines of communication around, not just between sales rep, a rural sales rep and the client, the farming client, but the company has a line of communication to that client. And then, and that's a triangle. And then if you visualize it further, which I'm doing a terrible job of uh, uh, visualizing here, you draw another line into that farmer and into that rural client, which is other farmers, other clients. And that becomes a square, but it becomes impenetrable. And find out, and you'll laugh, you'll laugh about this. That's an infantry square. And you know this, yeah. as you know this, as a soldier, as a military guy. So we use that militia metaphor. Now, Otis, this is great. We're conscious time, conscious your time, because you've got to go and shoot some deer. So we better, we better, better crack on here. Um, what do you think salespeople in my sector that I am so privileged to serve in rural and farming, and your son's obviously involved in agribusiness, what is it that you think salespeople could learn from military people? Uh, I think probably one of the biggest things, let me think about this. Well, I'm always one to have a plan. And and having a plan to go forward is critical. So you have to know what the plan is, where are we going, what what are we trying to achieve, and how are we trying to achieve it? But then the, the, the success comes in understanding that the how I'm going to achieve it can change. My strategy does not have to be tied emphatically to my outcome. I have to understand what's the end state, what's the outcome that I'm trying to achieve. I have to have a plan to get started, but I have to be willing to adjust that plan and take it's raining. So if it's raining, I need to do this. Uh, you know, if we're talking agriculture and there's, there's product involved, well, if, if the season is, is having less rain than it does, then how do I sell this product that requires more rain? And what, what do I adjust? And how do I, how do I see how the economy of that crop is, is changing? And how, how do I change my approach? Because in the end, the, I mean, the outcome of, a, of sales is, is, is to get that 
get that answer, solve the problem for your client, right? You've got a tool that solves the problem for your client. Well, how do I get him to understand how to solve that problem, how this product can help him? I think that's the plan is probably one of the most important things, but don't be that person that says, stick to the plan, stick to the plan. <laughs> Cause it, you know, Mike Tyson, uh, Mike yeah. Tyson's statement, uh, is, you know, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face, you know, and in the military, we always said, you know, everybody's got a plan until we cross that, till we cross the line of departure. Right. Yeah. And the line uh, of departures. When what you did, I can't remember Su or something. He said, you know, no plan survives contact with the enemy. Yep. Yep. Yeah. 100%. 100%. 100%. So that's a really, really good one around having a plan because we meet so many rural reps. I, I jump with them. I call them truck time, truck days. I go and observe them because seeing is believing, right? I go, what's your plan for today? They don't have one. But the good ones do. And the first thing you do is I look at their diary. Because if it's not in the diary, it doesn't get done, right? So they plan their days. They know exactly who they're going to give. They've got the sales cycle. They've got the prequel plans. They know the questions they're going to ask, the specific situation, where they're in the sale, what objections they're going to do, and how they're going to advance that sale down the line. That, to me, is more of a high-performing rep as opposed to one that is – because, you know, we don't jump in planes and the pilot doesn't have a plan. Like, we don't jump in a car and say, oh, I don't know where we're going to go today. This this rudderless lack of – clarity on the outcome and where you need to go there's no gps you mm-hmm. know but you can you can be flexible on your on your destination as well you know where you need to go and sometimes you've got to go off the highway or the motorway and you've got to take a slip road an a road a b road and all the rest of it so otis i've got a couple more questions before we have to love and leave you is who are some of the best leaders you've ever met or worked with can you share a few examples uh one of them and, and you can find him on uh, YouTube because, uh, and he's written a couple of great books. Is uh, Admiral Bill McRaven? He was I, I worked for him several years ago, and he he set things up for you to perform and you to be successful. Me, me as a subordinate to him. Uh, and I, I'll give you the the short war story. This is when I was still still in special ops. Uh, we were we were working for NATO Special Ops at the time, and we were doing some things in Afghanistan. And we were there with a big crowd of VIPs and kind of touring around uh, the countryside to get buy-in from the other partners and doing some other things in country. And two or three days, it was a very, very short trip. Think like uh, leave Friday night, scheduled to come back Sunday night. And I think it was probably Saturday afternoon, Saturday evening. The admiral comes to me and says, I want you to stay here and fix this. And I'm like, what, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, and I, I'm kind of scratched my head for a little bit. And then the next day, you know, no, cause that was, that was almost a, like a, like a chance contact glance, glancing blow. He drops that on me. The next day we're, we're at the airport. They're loading the plane and. You know, I, I knew that I was staying, but I wasn't quite sure what was supposed to happen. And I got the best guidance I ever got in my life was don't F this up. Call me if you need something. And good luck. That was it. Salute. I, I, I held my salute. He saluted me back, turned around, went up the stairs. 
got in, closed the door of the plane, they took off. <laughs> and, but because of all the work that we had done prior to that, he was able to give me that very specific, very general, it sounds very general, doesn't it? When you say it outside the context of, of everything that happened for the previous probably year up to that very moment, and he gave me those bits of guidance, I knew exactly what I had to do. I knew where to go. I knew how to do it. I knew what to do if something didn't go right. I knew what to do when things went wrong, wrong or th- things went right. <laughs> things happened the way we were supposed to. I knew who to talk to. I knew all those things because we had worked together as an organization and had a culture of, it's okay to, I want you to try as hard as you can. And if you miss the target, we're going we're gonna to go back and see why we missed the target. And we're going to, tr- we're going to adjust fire and hit the target the next time. And if we miss again, then we'll come back and we'll adjust and we'll hit it again. There was no, there was no fear in my mind of me screwing it up, even though, you know, that was the gut part of the guidance, right? Don't F this up. But that guidance told me that I had, I had his trust in my performance and my ability to do it right. Hundred percent. Yeah, and if something didn't go right, he got or I back. wasn't he had, clear. He, he had your back, and and he did because I had to call him. Yeah. There was there was one time where I had to call him. So things are things are looking like they're drifting off course, sir. And it's like, okay, well, talk to this person, do this. You know, very clear, probably 10, 15 minute phone call, right back on course. Not, not necessarily, let me, let me rephrase that, going back to our strategies change, right? So it wasn't back on the exact course that I was on, but it was an adjustment to still achieve the outcome that we wanted to achieve. Yeah. So you, it's like a plane, right? You're correcting your course all the time because you've got crosswinds and all the rest of it. That's an awesome story. What I love about it is with your um, Admiral Bill M- M- McLaren? McRaven. McRaven. You can find, look up... So that there's a uh, his video. Well, he's got a book that's called uh, "Make Your Bed," and the ah, is a video. He's huge. That dude's yes. huge on YouTube. That's a massive, massive. Yeah, it's like make your bed and then create that commitment of achievement, which will propel you and moment your day. Yeah, wow. So you were, you were his man. That's amazing. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I had the opportunity to work for him. Uh, classic, and- classic Otis, classic. So look. Um, what are your thoughts on resilience? This word that pops out. We got a cup. We got a, you know a few more minutes now, and then we'll, we'll when we'll we'll have to all go. But like, what's your thoughts on resilience? You know, we've talked about adaptability, flexibility. You know, not locking down your strategy. Like, if things change, we have to autocorrect. We have to correct our course. Now, resilience. You know, everyone's had a pretty torrid couple of years. Everyone's dealt in different ways. I still think we're probably going to see a bit of fallout from that. What? Are, what's your thoughts on resilience? What does it mean I- to you? Uh, I look at resilience as true resilience is is not when you, you fail the first time, but when you fail the second and third time. Anybody anybody can screw it up and try again. Resilience is somebody who continues to try and gets back up, gets gets back up, tries it a different way, gets back up, reassesses and tries something different. It really is that as opposed to, you know, playing the, uh, you know, the, 
the phrase and I, I make my funny face and snicker at it because I'm not a fan of it, but fail fast, fail forward, fail often. Yeah. I, I don't believe in failure. I believe in adjustments. Uh, failure, failure to me from my background means people die. So I don't believe in failure. I believe in, okay, that didn't work. So I'm going to adjust my fire. Just like I was saying earlier, I'm adjusting back onto a new target set. I'm adjusting how I'm, how I'm directing my actions against the target. That's what I'm doing. And resilience is the ability to continue to do that. Because a lot, almost everybody, you know, I won't throw a percentage out. We'll just call it almost everybody can get up and try one more time. Yeah. True resilience comes when you try it again and again and again until yeah. you are successful. Yeah. And notice, I mean, I'll cut in what that. Forgive me for, for talking over because these are absolute gems around it and lessons from military and Green Berets. I think it was Churchill, who, funny enough, was my grandfather's MP back in the UK. And a yeah. uh, wow. little fact for you. And we talked when I was very young, Tim, and Churchill, I think, is quoted, and I'm going to do him a huge disservice here. He says, success is not losing enthusiasm after failure, after failure, after failure. And it's something like that. And I was trying to desperately find it as we were talking, but, you know, it's to keep going. And obviously, that was a great example of it. And he was great, great on that. Now, I, what do you miss most from the military, Otis? You know, you've been out there. You've got a very, very good uh, credential, very good track record and pedigree. What do you miss most about the military since you've left? Uh, I would say the biggest thing I, I miss is, well, I'll, I'll say there's two. It's the camaraderie. You know, that, that instant connection that, that we all had a singular focus mission to perform. And the other thing I miss is the performance of the individuals. Mm. And this was because I was at a high, very high level. The example I, I use to help understand that is on Monday morning, our Monday morning training meeting, me, me as a team leader, I say, hey, we need three black three bags of blue powder by friday and wednesday afternoon i have five bags of blue powder <laughs> or wednesday afternoon without me asking wednesday afternoon the guy who's in charge of that comes to me and says hey sir uh i've got two i'm having a little trouble with getting that third one i'll let you know tomorrow at 1600 not me Friday afternoon going, where are my bags? Right, where, yeah, where are they? What's going on? Or, hey, have you done anything? Hey, have you done anything? Oh, yeah, I was going to get to that. Yeah. That's not, the difference. It's just not tolerated, eh? And, you know, it's not like we're running a military, but there's so many lessons. That's why I wanted to get you on the show, because there's so many lessons you can bring from your military career over to business. And you talked around, you know, resilience. With my rural reps, we know that 80% of sales are made in the 8th to 12th interaction, but almost all of them give up about 70 or almost 80% Pareto principle, 80-20 rule, 80% of them give up after the first rejection uh, or objection, which they take as a rejection. And we talk about the psychology of actually removing your ego from that. And it's fantastic around that, you know, when you're in a military environment, you know that your guys or your girls are going to get you what you want. And that level of high performance and that accountability, as opposed to, yeah, on Wednesday afternoon, you've either got them or you're close to getting them. And you're not asking, you're not chasing, they are getting them. They are getting yep. them. I um, I think that's terrific. Um, last question, 
last two questions and we've got to go is what is the most interesting thing you've taken and translated from being a green beret to being in business? Uh, probably, and I, and I teach this because I do a lot of work with uh, transitioning service members, is, is the fact that we have the skills, veterans uh, have the planning and understanding and leadership skills. What we don't have is the language and the culture understanding. And one, that's one of the things that I always teach the guys that I, I'm helping transition is that you've got it all up here. Because I, I, when, when I left the Army, I, I did what most of us did, uh, guys still do now. It's like, thank you very much, Army, I'm done. I need to flush all those processes and procedures and learn a whole new way of doing things because business is completely different. Well, the only thing that's different is now I have to worry about profit and loss and my margins and my, my capital and, and how much cash flow. I have to worry about that because in the military, there was always a blank check. Uh, but everything else, that's the only thing that you don't know as a military person coming into the business world. Everything else, leadership, uh, planning, risk analysis, and how to handle risk, how to react, how to take care of crisis situations, how to deal with stress, all that stuff. It, it's it's inherent to it's a military in. person. It's already in them. Yeah. And it's interesting you're saying that uh, what it is, is that it's just that they're on a different mission. Mm -hmm. They're on a different mission. Yeah. So, yeah. Otis, I've loved this. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful. You're very, very generous with your time and uh, your advice and your insights and your ideas here. Um, if you have one piece of advice, I ask all my guests this, and I think it's a powerful question. So, um, and 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 listeners, by the way, I have not prepped Otis on any of this. Like he's answered them straight off the cuff, like the pro that he is, Otis. If you had one piece of advice, knowing our listeners as I've described them and their avatar and who they are, working in the rural sector across Australia, New Zealand, sometimes South Africa, US, Canada, UK, but mainly here in Australasia, what would your advice, what would be the one piece of advice you would have for them and why? What is your one piece of advice you have for them and why? I, I think it's, it's create your vision for what you want to be, who, where, and what you want to be. Create that vision and always work towards it. Take that vision that you've created. I like to use five years because I think five years is a great time frame for pushing things out. What is your vision for five years from today? And walk that back. Create the goals and objectives. And then what are the action steps you're going to do today to walk you closer to that vision? And that vision becomes your your guide for your actions. And I'll take it one step, just one step above that is when you understand what your purpose is, then your purpose becomes the fuel to drive you to achieve that vision. Because your purpose, your purpose is fulfilled, your vision is achieved. And when you start to think about things in that sense, what is it? Where do I want to be in five years? What do I want to be doing? And if I know that, then I know what I can do today to achieve that. But if I'm going through my actions, my life, 
reacting to emails and phone calls with no plan, like we talked about earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm living in reaction mode. And reaction mode is extremely tiring and never satisfying because you can never get enough of it. It's like having, I want more money as a goal, mm-hmm. right? Because there's never enough money. If money is, is the driving thing, you'll never be satisfied. But if you have a true purpose and a vision for what you want to achieve, then your actions make sense. You start to live with intention. When you live with intention in pursuit of your purpose to achieve your vision of success, that then not every day is going to be great. But I tell you what, you're going to feel like you're accomplishing something in your life as opposed to, all right, got to get up. Let me check the email, see what's happening today. How many people live like that? I used to live oh. like that. Uh, the email, the email, Otis, we talk about that power hour and time to time and energy measurement. And we say, just do not look at your email. It's like, it's not highest and best use of your time. What I like about that is I think Victor Frankl in his uh, book, A Man's Search for Meaning, which I think is a recommend, it's on my top 10 mm-hmm. For my children, for anyone listening, you must read the book. It's an amazing book. He says, if you have a why, you can withstand any how. And like you say, you elevate, you have almost like a, um, a, a, a force field around you that keeps you going in those dark times. You know, if you're focused on your purpose, and I think you've, I think you've articulated that well. Otis, I am super, super grateful. I'm conscious that you've got to go and shoot some guns and some, some livestock. What I would, the last question, now, for people that are interested in this and they've they've learned something from you, where can they go and find out more about you? Where can they find you? Uh, well, our website is tribe-purpose.com. So on tribe-purpose.com, you can you can sign up for my my newsletter, Monday Moments newsletter, which I love sharing with folks. It's it's a uh, it kicks well for you for you on that side of the uh, day. It uh, I think you get it Monday night because uh, yeah. I send it out pretty early. Uh, but you, it's a stoic quote and then something I learned this week so that you have a lesson learned from me to kick off your week. And it's just, I, I enjoy sharing what I've learned. I, I'm a firm believer that if I keep my lessons and my skills to myself, I'm being a selfish SOB. And <laughs> so that's why one of the reasons why I started that newsletter three years ago. So go to the tribe-purpose.com, click the get started button and then sign up for the Monday Moments newsletter. If you want to jump on a call with me on that same button, uh, those are the two options. Schedule a, schedule a call with me or and always sign up for the newsletter. I, think, I, I love sharing that, that bit of information in my life. Otis, uh, it's been a pleasure, mate. I've really enjoyed it. You've given us a huge amount here. Um, I would encourage people to sign up for his um, newsletter. You'll get it Monday night down here in the Southern Hemisphere, which is kind of good because we seem to have so many statutory or uh, Mondays off that everyone can get set for their four-day week. We've had a lot of them recently, Otis. Maybe maybe I'm just cynical and I want to get back to work. But um, Otis, my friend, that has been brilliant. You've shared so much with us. Super appreciate it. And um, we'll, we'll stay in touch. So thank you. Oh, thank you. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate the opportunity. 